We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. What's going on, Pacer Nation? Welcome back to another episode here of Setting the Pace on PacersTalk.net. And we are a day late, but, you know, we're not a dollar short. So we got Kent Sterling on the other line. Kent, what's going on, my man? Not too much. Uh, I'm bummed about Domas. So yeah. it looks like he's going to be out for quite some time. So other than that, it seems like everything's going good. But Domas being out for a while kind of bums me out. Uh, was there a new update today? Well, they say that they don't know how long he's going to be out. He's getting treatment. And then once he comes back, it's up to the NBA to determine how long he's quarantined. And they really need to kind of uh, tell Domas how often he needs to be tested in order to keep that quarantine as truncated as possible. So uh, it it was an, an update, but there's more that the Pacers still don't know. Mm-hmm. Than, uh, than they probably do know. Yeah, so, yeah, this is such a bummer. And, you know, I know some fans that I've been seeing on Twitter are kind of excited to see the Pacers play a little bit more of a small ball type of lineup with Turner at the five and then sliding TJ down to the four. But, you know, I, I think come playoff time, come real basketball, not scrimmage games, I think you're going to see the impact that Domas has on this team, and I think fans that are kind of taking him for granted a little bit are going to realize just how important he is to this team. Well, my God, he, he's uh, an 18-13 and 13 guy. If you don't have Domas the bonus, how are you going to win the rebounding battle? I've seen that on social media, and I just don't get it. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I know that fans kind of go up and down and they enjoy discovering the good and then they kind of enjoy uncovering the bad almost as much. But I don't get it in Domas Sabonis' case. He is a guy that they run the offense through. He's incredibly important on the defensive end. I get it that it's, it is not typical uh, for, for an NBA team to run the offense and the defense in the way that the Pacers do. But if you think they're going to be a better team without Domas Sabonis, you're out of your mind. Yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of what I'm thinking, too. I think Domas is honestly the most important pacer on this roster right now. And I know yep. Victor Oladipo is very important as well, but, you know, he's still deciding if he wants to play. We're not sure what that's going to end up being. And, you know, he's testing it out every scrimmage game. He's looked better in these games. Um, but, you know, it's just one of those things, Kent, where – I'm just like, let's pump the brakes. You know, I get that people are excited to see Miles play five, excited to see McMillan maybe go a little bit more of a of a small ball lineup. But what I will say is, Jakar Sampson is your backup center, and you're going to be exposed by that in the in the playoffs. Yep. There is no doubt about it. I love Jakar, but I don't think he's good enough. He was where he was at before he got signed this year for a reason. And they're not going to have Goga back probably for two weeks. Right. They think it's going to be two weeks before he's back and active. So, yeah, this is, uh, you know, we've kind of had two guys who play a similar position in a similar way go down. And that's not going to bode well. What, what you hope is that, you know, we get to August 1st and then the regular season takes about two and a half weeks. Maybe in that period of time, Domas can kind of get the uh, plantar fasciitis kind of together so he can move and Goga winds up being active and maybe at some point in the first round you wind up with kind of all your bullets in your chamber and and that's what you hope for with uh with this postseason I think it's going to be really difficult for them to play well enough together to beat anybody in the playoffs the Heat or in all likelihood the Heat or the Sixers uh without Domas Savonis. Oh yeah, I mean, if we play the Sixers, I put this on Twitter today. We're gonna get accident. We're gonna just get totally smashed. Uh, yeah. Joel Embiid going up against Miles Turner. Turner gets in foul trouble. Who are you putting in there to guard him? T.J. Leaf, you know, six foot nine guy. That's <laughs> you know, not proven he's worth anything. Goga is a rookie. He'll get taken to school. Unfortunately, he just you know he's just not ready yet, especially with the setbacks that he's had injury wise. And then you put six foot seven Jakar Sampson out there. I mean, you're gonna have to double team him. You're gonna have to play maybe some zone. I don't even know what they're going to do without, you know, having the depth at center position like they had. And that's why I think a Boston series or a Miami series would be better fit for them because their lack of, of size. Yeah, right. That's a, that's a great point. It, it kind of, you know, it, because nobody else plays two bigs in the way or very few teams do at any point during a 48-minute game, are they going to have two bigs like Domas and Malcolm or Domas and Miles, maybe it makes it uh, an easier transition. But if you're playing a team with a true five out there, yeah. uh, you know it is not going to be pretty in all likelihood. Yeah, so I, I'm not trying to start anything here, but I want to ask you because I've seen a lot of fans on Twitter saying, oh, finally, Turner gets a, a chance to be the starting center and prove what he can do at the at the five. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't he the starting center for like three seasons before Domas came into the lineup? Yeah, yeah, and that's just—I mean, you know what? Uh, the fans are going to be fans, 
and a lot of them don't know what the hell they're looking at, to be honest. And if you're if you're hoping that the Pacers move forward without Domas Sabonis or that they make a trade and send Domas out, I love this. You've got to go get a three or a four yeah. for Domas Sabonis because blah, blah, blah. Really, what three or four are you going to get in return for Domas Sabonis, who's going to be as good as young as Domas Sabonis is? It's total idiocy. <laughs> well, I mean that's that's a great way to say it because I mean, I I think Miles Turner has a great opportunity to prove you know the the, the growth that he's you know shown throughout the season. We've seen Miles continue to get better. This is a great opportunity for him to show that he can stay out of foul trouble, that he can play the dominant pick and roll position uh, with doing what Sabonis does, but I think it would almost be kind of silly for McMillan to try to put Miles in the same spot he puts Domas in. I think they should try to change it up a little bit because I don't think Miles does what Domas does very well. It, Miles is better putting the ball on the floor. Uh, like he, we saw a couple times yesterday in that scrimmage, I think Miles is better at stretching the floor. I don't think using him as a pick-and-roll type player is where his bread and butter is. So this is this is a, this is a big adjustment for not just – the whole entire team, but for the coaching staff, because they run their offense through Domas, both with the starters and the bench. So this is a huge loss. And I, I just want people to take it for granted because, you know, it, it's fun to see new lineups and different things and be more modern, but is that the strength of your team? No, it's not. And what Malcolm said just a few minutes ago during the media availability was that they're going to run fewer sets. It's going to be small ball. They're going to attack the rim and kick it out for open shots. The offense is not going to run through the post in the way that it does with Domas. You're not going to have his playmaking ability or his ability to rebound offensively. I, I, I really think that we're going to see the Pacers kind of take a step back in terms of being a team that can out-rebound to anyone, mm -hmm. and that's going to mean trouble for them once they get to the playoffs. Yeah, I've heard some great points. For, um, I believe it was Caitlin Cooper. She had said this on a podcast earlier today, and I thought it was a great point. She said, because the Pacers are going to be giving up more rebounds, this is a time for them to start shooting more three-pointers because they're going to have to make that up somewhere, the possessions. Really? Have. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of fans want to see more three-pointer shot, which I know it's it's we're not the Rockets. We can't go out and play like the Rockets. We just don't have the guys to do that. But I do think that one one thing with Malcolm is, he is a big enough point guard. I mean, he's six foot six, two hundred thirty pounds. He can slide down to that small forward position or a wing position next with Victor, and you can play an Aaron Holiday. But I'm not sure I necessarily like that lineup. I would preferably rather have Justin Holiday out there with the starters because of his ability to be because he's so consistent from beyond the arc, and defensively they can switch more. You know what? It's not how many threes you shoot. It's how many threes you make. That's a good point. And this is this is not a team that's built to uh, to make a whole gob of threes. Malcolm can shoot it. Justin can shoot it. Um, Victor is you know a little bit wobbly shooting triples. Um, TJ can shoot him a little bit. You know you don't you don't have the. There's a reason they play the the way they play. Yeah. And and that is because there's they're trying to maximize their strengths. And making a bunch of threes, like the the other uh, in the uh, in the scrimmage against uh, Dallas, what were they eight of thirty three or something like that? I mean, they if they're not going to make more than twenty five percent of their threes, the analytics will tell you do not shoot threes. 
It, yeah. You got to get to where you're making 36, 38 percent, 40 percent. And if you can do that, you can win games. Maybe Doug can get hot. Yeah. You know, uh, that'd be a good thing. They do have some guys who are who can be productive from outside the arc, but that's not the way this team's built. And it's not built that way for a reason. Well, and there's no better duo with that second unit than Doug McDermott and Domas Sabonis, you know, so this really affects yeah. Doug as well because, you know, those pin-down screens that Sabonis gives him, the dribble handoffs, they just have such great chemistry together. You know, that, that second unit is, is well, going to hurt. So It, it absolutely will. It, 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 you look at – he does so many good things, and, and that's exactly right. Nate made, made that point today about the second unit, that Domas is not just a playmaker within the, the ones. He's also the playmaker with the twos. And, and without him creating opportunities from inside out, it, it's a little bit harder to create open looks from beyond the arc. And, and that really, that kind of, like you love to see Doug McDermott on the weak wing, you know, or at the three-point line kind of foul line extended where Domas can catch pop it out there and and he knocks down triple same thing with justin you know three-point shots are going to be harder to come by good three-point shots because domas sabon is sitting on the floor that's what that's what these guys like you got to look it's not three-dimensional chess but it is chess to an extent where you got to play three four and five shots ahead Mm -hmm. you know what i mean you're you're you got to say okay if i do this or moves ahead if I'm going to do this, he's going to do that, and then I lose this strength. That's kind of where the Pacers are without Sabonis. It's easy to say, oh, good, now they're going to shoot threes. But what the hell kind of threes are you going to get without Domas Sabonis on the floor? <laughs> well, that's a great point. I believe he was second in uh, assist off threes this year for the team. So it, it just shows how much of a facilitator he is and how smart he is. You know, I think the the three biggest things that I worry about with no Sabonis is you know, if we're playing a team that goes zone, which we've seen Miami do that, I know Boston would not be afraid to do that. If you would see if you see a team that goes zone against the Pacers, they've struggled with it a lot. And Domas is probably the best to break down that zone by getting in the middle and being a facilitator. I don't think that you know. I, I don't think Miles is able to have that great of a, a that he doesn't see the court. He doesn't have the court vision like Sabonis does. It's not a knock. It's just Sabonis is a much better facilitator. So you, yep. you lose that, and you mentioned it. The rebounding is a huge thing, but I also think the foul trouble, the depth of the center position. I mean, <laughs> it's just, you know, there's a reason why Gogo wasn't getting minutes. They tried early on. He just wasn't getting it. TJ Leave has never got it. And, you know, other than that, they don't really have any other big. So you're playing Jakar Sampson, a six foot seven, you know, power forward at the most, you know, at center now, backup center minutes. And I love Jakar. I think he's a great hustler. I think he's, you know, he does what he's supposed to do. He's an energy guy, but he's not a guy that you can rely on for 20 minutes a game to play the backup center position. So Miles cannot get in foul trouble in any of these playoff series. And, I put this out on Twitter yesterday, too. I mean, I think, really, you're going to have to see Miles Turner play about 40 minutes a game at center because of the depth that the centers are without Goga being injured and without Domas because he's injured. Well, and one of the things that Malcolm said today, too, is that this is terrific for Miles. He's going to get an opportunity. He's earned the opportunity because he came to Orlando in really, really good shape. He was ready to play. Yeah. He was in that kind of shape. He really went to work on his game. Uh, Jakar Sampson, there's a reason that Jakar 
before the the Pacers offered him that deal, there's a reason why he was going to go to China and play. Mm-hmm. And it's not that he's going to be an NBA all-star in his lifetime. <laughs> um, it, great guy, really, really likable, but he is what he is, and he knows what he is. Um, Miles Turner, we can hope that you know he takes a step forward and he sees this as an opportunity to kind of show who he is. And like he'd like to be an NBA all-star. When I talked to Dan Burke about him when he was a rookie, Dan Burke flat said he's going to be an all-star. Well, this is a pretty good time for him to prove that he's got that kind of game. He's he's five years in. It's time for him to start playing like an all-star if he's going to be. And and you brought up a good point. It's it's the feel for the game and the intellect that Domas Sabonis brings to basketball. Same thing with Brogdon. It, some guys get by on talent. Some guys have to flat figure it out. Domas Sabonis has. Malcolm Brogdon has. And, and the more you, the more guys you have like that, the better an opportunity you're going to have to win close basketball games because they just get the game. Yeah. Well, I don't. Did you listen to Kevin Bowen on 1070 The Fan today at all? No. Okay. So he had Jay Michael on around one o'clock, and they were talking a little bit about uh, about what this opportunity mean, could mean for Miles and. One thing that Jay Michael was saying was, you know, the Pacers know that they've got two centers and that they don't that they believe that they're better with just one center on the court, you know, instead of starting both of them, right? And they said they're probably right now leaning more towards Domas because he's been more consistent whenever he's on the floor. You know what you're going to get from him. You know, the upside might be higher sometimes with Miles because he can play on both ends of the floor, but he's not consistent enough. So do you think that during this, you know, weird bubble that we're playing in right now that this is a big enough sample size to really make a decision on how they go about, you know, uh determining the roster for the future? I number one I don't I don't believe that. I mean what what Jay said and I like Jay and Jay knows basketball, but I don't buy that with the Pacers. I think they like both of these guys. I'm going to take uh, Kevin Pritchard at his word and and assume that they're going to try to figure out how to win long term with both of those guys being on the roster and that means both of those guys I mean you're not going to sit Miles and you're not going to sit Domas so how, how do you move forward with you, you can't have one of those guys come off the bench that Domas has been an all-star and and Miles has got enough game to make you think he could be yeah. why in the world would you take one of those guys off the floor when they're 23, 24 years old, I, I don't get it. I, I don't agree with the uh, the proposition that Jay made that, you don't, that you don't they think want they should. to figure out which of these guys it, they're going to keep and which of these guys they're going to send. I, I just don't buy it. Well, he brought up that, you know, Miles was in that trade rumor at the draft last year where it was between the Hawks and the, and the Pelicans and Miles where they were considering trading Miles uh, to New Orleans, I believe it was, and then get the fourth overall pick or something like that. And uh, they said that they've listened to offers for Miles. And so I, he said that he just he, – he said the Pacers know that they're better with just one of them on the court compared to having them both out there. But they're both talented, so they, they want to make it work because they don't want to pull the trigger. But they know that you know having a more traditional forward be something that would benefit both of them. Yeah, I, I think that they kind of like the construct of their team. I, I'm going to take Pritchard at his word. Okay. And, and now that doesn't mean 
that you don't trade Miles or Domas under any circumstance. I mean, if somebody offers you a preposterous return, you know, yes, thank you. We will move anybody to go get, you know, the fourth overall pick, depending on how your draft board lays out, I can see giving up Miles Turner for a fourth overall pick, but what you're going to do with a four, and, and this is kind of where you get into the advanced math a little bit, it, not calculus, but algebra maybe, okay. is that the the fourth overall pick, you're likely taking a guy who was one and done at the collegiate level. That guy's not going to be ready to contribute to a, a championship-level team probably for three years. So you've got Vic, you've got Brogdon, you've got guys kind of in their prime that that you want to be able to exploit toward a championship so if you go out and get a you know a 19 year old point guard or a 19 year old three, uh, you know what that then gonna help you today. Mm-hmm. You know that's like that's buying futures for 2024, and and the Pacers I I don't think they're in a win now mode, but they're in a win soon mode, and and if you keep Miles, you're gonna be a better basketball team with him than a really talented guy who's going to be able to kind of show you his wares and that you're going to benefit from in 2024-2025. I think the only reason why they would have explored that trade, Kent, to me, is just because of finances. You know, you you think about a rookie contract, you get that player for, you know, the two plus two plus five years, that gets them nine years on your team. You know, Miles is already in his extension, You've extended Miles, you've extended Domas, you've got T.J. Warren that's going to be coming up for an extension here in a, a year or two. You kind of have to extend Do- uh, Victor next year. You just sign Malcolm, you know, they don't have a ton of money. So right. they've got a lot of money, you know, tied up between their four or five, you know, best players. But, you know, and Jeremy Lamb was signed for a decent amount too. So, you know, they've got all this money tied up. They don't like to pay the luxury tax. You said it yourself. They're not in win mode now, but they're in win soon uh, mode. So how do they go about trying to find the right pieces to put this roster together? Well, I think it's really difficult. And and this is the bind that the Pacers have been in since like 1989, where they've been good but not great. And they've been good but not terrible. Right. And, you know, you don't want to Sam Hinkie the thing for three years because – Bankers Life Fieldhouse will be a ghost town. It'll be empty. Fans won't come to watch losing basketball in central Indiana. They won't watch guys they don't like, and they won't watch teams lose. We know both those things. The Pacers know both both those things. So what they've do, done is find a way to go get, you know, on a scale of, of 1 to 10 at all five spots, they've got sevens or seven and a halves. You know, and that's kind of been the way that that team's been built forever. They, not a lot of all-stars, no MVP candidates virtually, other than yeah. Jermaine O'Neal that one year. And I don't know, if, if somebody voted for Reggie Miller at some point as an MVP, go ahead. That's fine. But they've, they've never, I mean, when was, the, I, I think it was McLeod was the last time they drafted in the top 10. You know, they just Paul don't George. get those guys. Paul George, top ten pick, your boy. Well, Paul. he was ten. I I mean single digits. I'm sorry, oh, single you're right. digits. Exactly. Yeah, I I can't think of one that they've had in the last fifteen years. Yeah, it's, I'm I'm trying to go back and think about it. Jonathan Bender, they traded for that pick. So right, right, yeah. So I mean, that's kind of it's it's a tough spot. I mean, you know, nobody wants to see losing basketball. I think the worst 
type of basketball I saw was the Jim O'Brien years. Uh, yeah, that, that was pretty awful. I mean, it was nice to get two dollar tickets into the balcony, but that's <laughs> you know, as a as a young high school student, yeah. that was nice. You know, I was uh, Danny Granger all the way. But you know, uh, kind of tying Danny Granger into this conversation, Danny was someone that dealt with plantar fasciitis himself, and yep. you know that really derailed his career a little bit towards the end there. And then you talk about plantar fasciitis with this current roster, Malcolm Brogdon dealt with that. In, in Milwaukee last year, and he missed a significant amount of time. So, to put a to put a bow on this conversation here with Domas, I, I mean this this injury is pretty serious. And to me, if he's not fully healthy, I don't want him to risk coming back and re injuring it, re aggravating it for the long term. Because right, we're still in you know win soon mode. Like I said, I love how you said that. So, and I'm curious, do you think this impacts Victor's decision to play if Domas doesn't play? I think Victor's decision is entirely business. Okay. I, I think that it's going to be where can I make the most money and where can I, uh, you know, do my music stuff and where can I be in a position to help my family live a better life? I, I think that that's, that's what Victor is going to think about as he moves into that decision. Well, I'm um, talking about the bubble. Oh, oh, I thought you meant with the no. extension. No, no, no. Oh, uh, I, you know what? I think if he's – wow, that's a good question because really I gave him a lot of credit that I don't think he was due when he made the initial decision where I thought he was making a long-term choice to deny himself $3 million in order to guarantee himself getting $100-plus million with the extension. But then he goes back and he says, I might play. So it looks like the $3 million actually is important to him. Um, it, I know he loves playing. You know, we, we tend to look at these guys as mercenaries, but I think they're, each of these guys are two different guys. One's a businessman and one's a competitor. And, and so I think it's going to be kind of a, a push-me-pull-you type, uh, type situation with Vic where he's got to decide, am I going to indulge in the competitive or – Am I going to be the businessman and make the right business choice moving forward, knowing that I could hurt myself? Plus, there's it's going to be a quick turnaround into the 2021 season. And all of a sudden, you know, if he comes back and if he comes back during Orlando and he hurts himself again somehow, that sets him back, you know, just about a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he would he would come back. He would be eligible to sign with somebody as a free agent while not being healthy and not being able to play. That'd be that'd be awful. Yeah. You know, I I don't. I mean, that would that would corrupt his ability to earn that hundred hundred and fifty million dollars that's going to be waiting for him in, in an enormous way. So, I mean, that's a big decision. And I, to me, I think you know what? You're under contract to play. You're able to play if you baby it. Maybe you get hurt anyway. Let's hope he doesn't go, uh, you know, like ski boarding, like uh, <laughs> like Andrew Locke. Let's hope uh. he doesn't do anything like that during the off season. But I, to me, go out and play. Show people you're real, you're willing to ball out and and be there with your team. I think it helps your marketability. Yeah, I agree with all of that, and, and I think it's. I mean, I think we've seen improvement from Oladipo just from game one to game two. Yeah, you know, still I don't think he's really trying to create contact at the rim. 
he's he's still kind of just settling or, or accepting the um, the mid range jumper or the floater before he gets any contact. You know, he's sh- shooting quite a bit from deep as well too. And yeah, his his shot doesn't look too bad. I mean, I thought it looked better against Dallas than it did against Portland. But he had a nice nifty pass to Malcolm Brogdon where he kind of attacked the lane and then made that little swipe pass through the middle. And I thought it was great to see him do that because that just shows, you know, hey, he's starting to feel a little bit better. He he seemed to kind of have a little bit of a burst too, you know, and I think Quinn brought it up, you know, it, it's not the starting that's hard, it's the stopping that's hard. So yeah, it's it's one of those things where I'm just kind of watching him to see how he feels and he, he looks like he feels better than he did. So I'm optimistic about that and I think, hey, you know, if you're down there, if you're healthy enough to play, you know, if you're a true competitor, go out there and play. And Mike Focci brought this up last week when I was talking to him, and I thought it was a great point. Victor Oladipo has only played in one playoff series, you know, or, or two playoff series, but the one was with OKC and then one here in Indiana. So he's only played in two playoff series in his entire career. You know, with that injury, you know, how many more playoff series is he going to have, depending on – you know, where he goes next year. Because, you know, if rumors are true and he decides he wants to go to the Knicks for his music career, he ain't going to make the playoffs. So how much does he really care about competing and playing in the playoffs? If it's Victor Oladipo, the competitor, I think, hey, this is a great opportunity to try to go out there and prove yourself. And here's the thing. If Victor Oladipo is pining for uh, the next chapter of his basketball life being with the Knicks, to hell with him. He can go (laughs) play for the Knicks because he is not about winning at all. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you want to go to New York and have James Dolan sign your checks, good for you. I don't blame Tom Thibodeau at all for going out there as the head coach. He's going to coach two years. He's going to get fired because Dolan's going to get pissed off that he can't win, not knowing that he's the cause mm-hmm. and, and that Thibodeau could be the solution. And he's going to get paid the last three years of his deal. And, and it, life's going to be wonderful because there's nothing as much fun as getting paychecks without working. And so that that's what Thibodeau's looking toward, and good for him. But at Victor Oladipo, the clock's ticking on his basketball career. If he wants to waste a single second playing for the New York Knicks, I don't want him with the Indiana Pacers because he has no interest in winning. I think Victor is going to find a way to, if he leaves here, he's going to find a way to play for a team that will be competitive, and that will allow him to pursue the other kind of avenues of of wealth or creativity that he he kind of longs for. Yeah. So I mean, all in all, Victor Oladipo, this is you know a guy that we want to see on the court in Orlando, yeah. especially if Domas is out. You want to see Victor out there playing because it gives you the best chance to win, even if he's not a hundred percent. If you're the opposing team, you still have to respect his game. So there's no worry. Like you're a better team with Victor, even if he's not 100. percent But I want to move on. My my final topic I want to talk to you today about. Uh, it looks like you know I know you didn't listen to the interview with Jay Michael with Kevin Bowen, but they talked a little bit about Nate McMillan and his deal. And so uh, Jay tweeted this. He said that McMillan is fully guaranteed for 2019-20. He wanted a shorter deal, and there's a team option for 2020-2021, according to the Indy Star. So it looks like there is a team option uh, for Nate McMillan going into next season. Does this mean that there is a possibility in your mind that the Pacers could look to move in a new direction? And I guess why would McMillan want a shorter deal? I, I 
I don't know, unless he thinks that the Pacers are on the doorstep of some serious winning, and and then he can kind of go to Herb and go to Kevin and say, look, pay me. You know, I'm I'm the coach of a potential championship team. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know why he'd want a shorter deal. Um, I, I think he likes it here. We like him. I don't think he's kind of burned his bridges with the roster. I think the guys still enjoy playing with him. He likes his staff. The staff likes him. Uh, I I don't see any. And you can you can you mentioned Jim O'Brien. The writing was on the wall. You knew that o- O'Brien was was going bye bye. You could feel it. You could feel it with Vogel going back to Larry Brown. You could feel it then. You could feel it with Carlisle. There there just seems to be a a sort of evolution of guys in a coaching position where you can just you sense the end is nigh. And I don't get that sense with Nate. Uh, I, I, that would surprise me tremendously it, it, because I think Nate and Kevin have a really good relationship. And, and that is exceptionally important, especially with the turnover of the roster. I mean, hell's bells. I, I, uh, Miles is the longest tenured guy, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like you're just churning guys like happens in the NBA. You're not going to burn guys out. Nobody's playing 12 years with one team anymore. And and so you really don't need to worry about kind of that burnout with a coach. And and I think that Nate really likes it here. I mean, and you know when Nate's happy, which I like about Nate. You can tell whether Nate is like, oh, man, this is not fun. Like the last year with Paul George, that Nate, you could tell, was not having any fun at all. And then that next year, when he came into the uh, the season kind of preview media availability, he, there was a bounce in his step. He had a smile. And afterward, I was like, you seem really happy. And he said, you think so? And he had a big grin. He doesn't smile a lot, but he smiled a lot that day. You can tell when Nate's happy. I think Nate's happy. Yeah, I mean, he's been here since 2013 as an yeah. assistant coach. So he's been here about seven years and the only thing I mean, he's not that old. He's only 55 years old. So, you know, I was wondering maybe he didn't want to coach for, you know, in, in, late into his 60s or 70s. Maybe he wants to retire early, enjoy life. But, you know, basketball minds like that don't really like to get out of the game ever. So, you know, I, I don't know. It's an interesting concept. I mean, I'm not sure yeah. why I would ever want a shorter deal, especially if there was a longer deal on the table because – you would feel like you'd have more wiggle room if you had a longer deal, not as much to prove, I guess. But, you know, it's it's one of those things I don't feel like – like that's a great – I think you brought up a great point where you said you can kind of feel it with the other coaches the Pacers yeah. have had. I don't feel it with Nate either. <laughs> I know fans might want it. Some of them might want it. But I just don't feel it. It, it, it feels like to me – if they lose Oladipo in free agency next year and they get swept in the first round, I mean, because without Sabonis, you're going to have an asterisk uh, once again on this season, similar to last year with Oladipo. What were you expecting to happen? You know, so if they're healthy next year and, and they still struggle to get out of the first round, but I think the East is going to be even tougher next year with Durant coming back. You know, I just, I just don't really know what Pacer fans are expecting. It's just. McMillan's got a lot to prove, I think, as far as a playoff coach goes. But with the with the roster being shorthanded, I mean, what is he supposed to do? Right, right. And you know what? You're exactly right. We've got to figure out as Pacers fans what our expectations are. And anytime you talk, here's the way fans think about firing people. 
they, they always say, oh, we've got to fire this guy, right? Well, okay, but there's a two, there's kind of a two-step process here. You got to fire Nate, and then you got to hire his replacement. Who is that replacement going to be? Where are you going to find a guy with Nate McMillan's qualities who will come to Indiana? And coaches team. I mean, you know, is it important who the coach is? That's a legitimate question. With a team like the Heat, it's really important. I think with a team like the Celtics, it's important. I don't know, like with the 76ers, I, I think that they'd be fine with a number of guys. You know what I mean? You, mm-hmm. you see with the Bulls, all right? We'll take the Bulls, for instance. They got Thibodeau. Then they've got Hoiberg, and now they've got Boylan. Is that a fundamentally different team was that a better team under any of those guys? You know, the NBA is a player's league. And and I, I think that a coach can do a lot more harm than good. A bad coach is going to kill you. A good coach might win you a couple of games during the course of the season with some schematic skullduggery, you know. Um, I, I think what you really want in a coach is to make sure that that coach is going to set a standard for 82 games and hold guys accountable to that standard for 82 games. That's what Nate McMillan does. Other yeah. than that, you know, it's like the the dry erase board stuff. Everybody knows all the same stuff. You know, nobody is reinventing the game other than D'Antoni, I guess. You know, he's kind of reinventing the game. But other than that, you know, what who who who's making that big a difference for his his team with scheme? Yeah, that's 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 a good point. I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I guess Spolstra kind of figures things out based on this roster. Um, yeah. You know, I think he's done a good job inserting younger players like uh, Kendrick Nunn. I don't think he would probably be the player he was this year if he's in a different system. You know, Duncan Robinson, you know, we made fun of him last week. Right. You know, but he he's a player that's really, you know, thrived in that Spolstra system. And then I, I think the perfect example is Tyler Johnson, right? Guy has one good year with Miami. I don't even think they made the playoffs that year, and the Nets go out and pay him, you know, fifty yeah. some million dollars or something stupid like that. You know, so he gets he gets a contract of a lifetime for being a mediocre player on the Heat that didn't make the playoffs. So, you know, there's there's not a lot of coaches that are just oh my gosh, amazing. I guess Pop, but I he's probably losing it a little bit. And, and another guy that you know, a former Pacers coach, I think is one of the top coaches in the NBA, Rick Carlisle. Uh, he he has a system that I really enjoy watching, and I feel like he can make you know good players better. But I guess I guess that's kind of what McMillan does too. Well, and that's what you hope for, right? So if you if you could identify, and Kevin Pritchard, I don't think has ever shown this capability, and and very few general managers do, where you can identify the next Eric Spolster coming down the pike. Then you know what. That's great. But we haven't seen that here. You know, I think Frank, Frank Vogel was maybe the closest thing. And I, that was a Herb Simon hire from what I heard. Really? So, yeah, that Larry, Larry wasn't digging Frank, uh, that, that Frank was kind of forced on him by Herb because Herb liked Frank and liked the way that the team played after O'Brien got fired. And for good reason. Yeah. And Frank was pretty good. And so now Frank's at L.A. And maybe Frank winds up being a, a guy who wins a championship. I think I would be – I will never root for the Lakers ever. 
and I will never root for LeBron James ever, but I will root for Frank Vogel. And if he wins a championship because he's got LeBron James, good for him. Frank Vogel is the perfect example of, you know, this is a star-driven league, not a coach-driven league. Yeah, You put Frank Vogel in the position he was in with Indiana. They had a lot of good talent surrounding it. You know, they got David West the following summer after they competed with the Bulls. You have a young star in Paul George rising up. Danny Granger was still pretty good. Roy Hibbert starting to become something. And he allowed those young guys to play, which we hadn't seen with Jim O'Brien because he was stuck playing, you know, Jerry Jack, TJ Ford, you know, mediocre <laughs> veterans that were, were, you know, nobodies. And, and then... After he has success here, you know, once once David West and Hibbert and all those guys leave, you start to see him fall back down to reality. Goes to Orlando, that's a train wreck because yeah. Orlando's roster is a train wreck. Then he gets the gig over in L.A. coaching LeBron and Anthony Davis. Now they're number one in the West, and people are talking about Frank Vogel being a great coach. So, you know, it's <laughs> it's. <laughs> It's just you follow the storyline because I had I had concerns with Frank Vogel going forward. I thought his offense was atrocious. Uh, you know, there was a lot of sets that I would get so sick and tired of seeing because I felt like yeah. it was, you know, he could only run a few sets. And then after that, I felt like he was more of a cheerleader coach sometimes than he was an X's and O's guys. And we, we always talked that Dan Burke runs the defense. So everybody kept saying, well, Vogel is this great defensive-minded coach. I'm like, well, he got that. He got that on his resume because of Dan Burke, right? That's what I always thought. So I, I'll i be honest with you, Kent. I was not a fan of the hire of Nate McMillan when it happened. I never I never wanted McMillan as the coach because I was afraid this is what was going to happen to the Pacers. This is what happened to Portland. Good teams that don't get far in the playoffs, and unfortunately that has come true. But I don't think that Nate's a bad coach. I just didn't feel like that was the guy that I wanted to see take this team to the next level. Who would you want? I didn't really know. I mean, that's that's, yeah. a, that's the thing because I, I feel like Mark Jackson had just gotten fired at that point, so it was kind of one of those names that everybody kept throwing out. Uh, one coach that I've always liked, even though I know uh, <laughs> he coached Michael Jordan, was Doug Collins, but he's a little older. I've always yeah. kind of liked the way he's coached. He was somebody that I had kind of mentioned. Uh, I believe it was Nate Taylor was working at the Star for a year or two. Um, he took, took over for Candace Buckner, and I think I was talking about Doug Collins with him before. Other than that, I mean, there weren't a lot of great names out there, so you never really know. And, and but then you look at Doug, and and Doug's not a bad coach, certainly. But what's he done, right? Right. You know, I mean, he he had a couple of trips or one trip to the Eastern Conference Finals with the Bulls, and uh, they fired his ass and hired Phil Jackson. If yeah. you can if you can find the next Phil Jackson or Eric Spolstra, I'm all in. But other than that, I really like Nate. I, uh, Nate's a uh, – and, and this is maybe as much a personal thing as a professional thing, but I, he's just a likable guy, and I enjoy being around him, and, and conversations with him are always enjoyable. So, um, and, and I think that the players feel that way. You, you can see that they're, they're with him. So, you know, I, I think talent wins in the NBA, and if, if the Pacers get the level of talent – that's going to allow them to go, you know, 60 and 22. I, I think that Nate is a coach who will get that talent to 60 and 22. Yeah, I say, I say, pick up the team option. Let him see what he can do next year with a healthy Oladipo, a healthy Sabonis. 
see what this team can be. I know Jeremy Lamb will still be coming back from his injury, but hopefully you get him halfway through the season. You know, since we'll be starting a little bit later, that timetable gets pushed back for him, which is a good thing for the Pacers. So, yeah. you know, and basically lose him for a year and a half. So you can get Jeremy Lamb back, see what these guys can do in the playoffs. You know, if you make a move or two, I mean, I think you got to bring Justin Holiday back. That's the that's the only really priority to me in the offseason if Oladipo refuses to talk extension. So got to bring Justin Holiday back. I think he means too much to the bench and to the morale of the team. Let McMillan run it with these guys because the question we were talking about last week is, how good is this team if Oladipo plays all year long? We don't know. So right. let us see what we can do. But if it's if it's the same kind of thing, I think that you might have to consider just getting a different voice, maybe with a different scheme, a different system in there. Well, it's uh, these are it, – here's the deal with Nate, too, right? There was enormous turnover two years ago. There has there was enormous turnover this past off season where they pick up Warren, they pick up Brogdon, they pick up Lamb, Holiday, Goga gets drafted. I mean, there's a lot of tumult in that in that roster, and still they go out and they're going to win 48, 50 games, mm-hmm. and that seems to be what Nate McMillan does: is he takes teams that are maybe on the high end of mediocre, and they win 48 or 50. And then when you get to the playoffs, it gets a little bit more difficult because you're you're not you're not able to win with talent anymore, and and talent wins games. You know they've got to get lucky. They've got to find a guy at eleven. You got to hope that when you take a Miles Turner at eleven, that he's going to be that guy. Yeah. You know that that everybody screwed up. It's a Kawhi Leonard situation where you know he falls to fifteen. The Pacers take him, they deal him, and look, he, if, if the Clippers win, he's in all likelihood going to be a finals MVP for the third different team. You know, you've got to get that kind of lucky. And, and, and the Pacers, they were, and then they traded him. What the hell were they thinking, right? You know, they got lucky with Paul. You know, they, they hit that nail on the head. I think they got lucky with Hibbert in, in that trade. Yeah. Where where Roy, when he was motivated and, you know, he wasn't lined with with FU money uh, or his pockets weren't lined with that level of cash, you know, he really went to work and he became a functional guy, despite, I think, not liking the game of basketball. So, um, you know, you, you just got to get lucky with the draft. Maybe Aaron Holiday is a guy like that. Maybe Goga is yeah. a guy like that. You know, I love my Goga. I know. I know you love Goga. So. <laughs> I guess my last my last question here because it's it's just a good point and I want to hear your thoughts. What are your different uh, what are your, what are your differences that you see between how Larry Bird ran this team compared to Kevin Pritchard? Because oh, I wow. think that that could be an interesting thing to look at. Because personally, from a from just looking back from a distance, I would just say I feel like Bird was maybe a little bit more aggressive in making transactions. You know, they're and isn't that odd because that's Kevin's MO. I know. And and so that's I think that Larry from a, a player development standpoint, uh I I don't think he was as willing to to kind of take a risk on a kid that they would have to develop. I, I think he went after guys who who were gonna be who they were, guys like Tyler Hansborough. Solomon Hill. Yeah, Solomon Hill. I mean, what the heck? What? I, but hey, solo man. 
Solo, he wound up making a lot of money. Did it was four years, fifty-two million, or some crazy number 40, like that? It was forty-four. Four years, forty-four with with the Pelicans. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Good for him, man. He's never going to have to work again in his life. And what he does, he does at a very mediocre level. Right. Um. You know. So, uh, with Kevin, like Kevin's drafts, I really like the. Obviously, I, I like taking Batadza. But uh, Aaron Holiday, I still question. I was I was walking around thinking about this today. You know, it, Jalen Brunson was right there, and I get that Aaron Holiday was projected a little bit higher than where they got him. But man, if you can go get a kid like Brunson, who is, I mean, he and Malcolm Brogdon, I don't know. Those two guys, they might wind up owning NBA franchises. I don't know. They are brilliant. They are competitive. They're really like to just the personality that Brunson has. And then the fact that he won two uh, national championships at Villanova. I just loved him. And uh, taking Holiday, I got nothing against Aaron, but I, I don't know. I, I, I just think um, I like, and I like Kevin a lot, but I, you know, I, I think I wind up disagreeing with both guys about as often as I disagree with, you know, I, I disagreed with Larry about stuff. I disagree with Kevin about stuff. I also agree about something. I think going out and getting TJ Warren, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, McConnell, I think that what he's done also, and this is going to bear long-term fruit, is he's building an organization that is absolutely uh, a magnet for guys who want to come play basketball in a place that cares about basketball and in a place where they care about their players and are going to do everything they can to maximize their experience. I think that that's kind of Kevin Pritchard's MO and that's what he's trying to build. And that is the thing that's going to eventually bring the kind of talent in that maybe can win a championship. Yeah. I feel like right now Pritchard is more of a culture guy. He's culture driven. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like he's more determined to build the culture than he is to build a championship team where he's more afraid to take risk as far as maybe trading an important piece. Like I know that it didn't work out for Larry Bird when he traded Danny Granger, but Danny was an important piece, even though he was hurt. There was a, it was one of those things where he said, Hey, we got a chance to win it all this year. I got to go all in. He goes after a guy like Evan Turner. Now I know, like I said, it didn't work, but I think that bird was, you know, not as loyal, I guess you could say to the guys on his roster where he would, he cared more about trying to build that championship level team and didn't care as much about culture. And I think how that affected the players in the locker room, Kevin saw that, you know, from a, from a, you know, a, an assistant GM or a GM position, wherever he was at underneath Larry. And I think he kind of, you know, took note with that and, and he has listened to his players more. He's trying to become a player's organization because yep. he allows the guys to kind of dictate what he does. He'll talk to them. What do you think we should do? The guys came and said, please don't make any trades. Give us a chance. Let us ride this out. That kind of stuff. Where Bird would just be like, you don't make the decisions around here. I'm Larry Bird. I make the decisions. So that's where I think the biggest differences is. But it ultimately, you know, Bird got further along. But Bird had a lot much a larger window uh, as far as when he took over and where he finished. You know, I, I think that one thing that Bird did that I never – I never agreed with was in his, how he evaluated guys. I think he took for granted 
um, work ethic. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and and I thought that he because he had unbelievable work ethic, right? Nobody nobody ever has has worked harder in the NBA to be a great player than Larry Bird. I mean, it's a, his the stories of the way he went to work with the Celtics, whether he was winning MVPs or whether he had back problems late in his career. Um, I, I think that he always coveted the kind of talent that he believes that he didn't have. Mm-hmm. And so he went out and tried to get talented guys. And and that, like, who in the right mind goes out and gets Andrew Bynum? I mean, I, and I get it. At the time, I thought, you know what? If the guy shows up and he balls, you put yourself in a position to win a championship. Well, that didn't happen, and it helped tear that team apart. Yeah. I, I think that he didn't realize the the importance of dealing with kind of the cult of personality that exists on an NBA franchise because he never had to deal with it when he was with the Celtics. Yeah. Well, and, I, and I think you could even look at Willie Cauley-Stein, someone he called a $100 million player. You know, while that's yeah. funny to look back at now, I mean, Colin Stein <laughs> might, you know, might have had all these, you know, all these different talents, all these different attributes that could have attributed to him becoming a $100 million player. But you said it, work ethic, you know, yeah. that's, that's a lot of it. When I see Colin Stein, I think of someone that just kind of accepts the fact that, you know, he's in the NBA, he's enjoying it, but he doesn't put in the extra work to me to become a great player. And I know Sacramento kills you though, but like that's a, I think it's a rare attribute Uh and that's why I think that culture is really important because you need guys who are going to, who are going to strive for something greater than generational wealth and first class travel and privilege. You've got to have guys who want to win championships. And I don't think that those guys are growing on trees Mm -hmm. in, uh, in the NBA. I don't. I think there are guys who are really, really happy living that life and making that money and and feeling like, you know what, when I retire, I can take care of everybody. And if I invest well, I'm never going to have to work. And this really, you know, while it's work, it's working at a a boys game while flying charters or private jets and staying at the Four Seasons. You know, I mean, (laughs) you, you don't want that life. You're out of your mind. So. If you're born to be 6'10", and you have good hand-eye coordination, and you know you, you understand working a little bit, you've got a chance to make a lot of money playing basketball and set yourself up for a whole life. And I think once you get in the midst of that, you know, somebody told me something really smart about being rich once. He said there are different levels to rich. And once guys get rich, they want to get to that next level. And and I think that that's where the NBA lifestyle is. It's not necessarily about championship rings for guys. It's about finding a way to that next level of wealth, that next level of celebrity, and that that is kind of driving the train. And that's unfortunate because that's not what the game is. Yeah. No, and I think just to kind of come back to the differences between the two here, Kent, you know, I think I think culture is very important, and I think that continuing to build that culture, solidifying that culture, and making that a, a prominent thing that you look at and you and you cling to is good. But I also think whether it's this off season, next off season, or you know, in three years, I think that it'd be smart for Pritchard to to make a move that might put this team at risk a little bit. 
whether that's dealing one of the two centers, whether that's you know packaging uh, somebody off the bench that you think has potential uh, with a starter that you know might not be the best overall player on the team, but somebody that can get you something worth return. You know, I, I just think that there's got to be something because, like you said, this team has got a bunch of seven, seven and a halves, and seven and seven and a half teams aren't winning any titles. Nope, you're right. But you know what? Better to have sevens than fives. And finding tens are really, really hard. Well, you know I'd what be I mean? willing to so, trade. I'd be willing to give up three seven and a halves for a ten <laughs> and a five. Kent. <laughs> if you find a guy to make that trade, trade with his ass all day long. <laughs> you know what I mean? And one thing that we forget in that whole equation about executives is there's Donnie. You yeah. know, and and Donnie's still going to every practice. I don't. He, in fact, I'm certain he's not down in the bubble. But when they were practicing at the St. Vincent Center, there was Donnie every day, still very, very plugged in, and as able an executive as has ever existed in the National Basketball Association. Yeah. No, Donnie Walsh, I I think that it's going to be tough to top him as the best Pacers president. There's no doubt about it. I mean, even though I think Larry and Kevin have had their moments, Donnie Walsh is just in a league of his own. So. Anyway, we've talked a lot about random stuff today, but hey, we've got real Pacers basketball again tomorrow or tonight if you're listening to this on Tuesday morning as the Pacers play the San Antonio Spurs in their final scrimmage game. And then we have our regular season returning August 1st against the Philadelphia 76ers. So real exciting times here for Pacer fans and a good opportunity, like we mentioned at the beginning, Kent, for Miles Turner to show his worth and for Victor Oladipo to get his feet wet and continue to develop. So any parting words, Kent, before we sign off? No, let's go beat the hell out of the 76ers and wrap up that four seed at worst, or five seed at worst, and then uh, set our sights on the heat in those uh, those two games against them uh, over the course of the last, what, week and a half of the regular season. Let's go. Let's go, ladies and gentlemen. All right, we'll talk to you all next week. Peace out, Pacer Nation.